Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Hello, I'm David Hepworth, and uh, by the miracle of Skype, I'm joined by Mark Allen. Are you there, Mark? I am. I can see you in a little window on my uh, computer screen, excitingly. Very much. And we're going to talk about a couple of books uh, about music, which we've both uh, recently read and enjoyed. The first one is uh, Naked at the Albert Hall by Tracy Thorne. And obviously, you know Tracy best from her many hits with... Everything but the girl and so forth. And also her excellent memoir, Bedsit Disco Queen. Uh, this isn't the follow-up to the latter, although she does write about how she doesn't sing live anymore, which is interesting. Uh, but here she offers what she calls a compendium of insights into singing, both from the point of view of a singer and a listener. And I suppose the first thing to say, Mark, is this is, this is long overdue, isn't it, for somebody to write about singing? Yeah, it is, because I suppose we all think of of instruments as something that you have to learn and and uh, get better at and improve. And I think we think that, um, that the voice, that, that, that vocals are just something you can either do or you can't do. In fact, she makes a really good point at the very beginning of the book uh, that everybody can sing. All children are encouraged to sing. You're never told you can't sing. So I suppose it doesn't seem to the outsider as though there's a lot of magic to it at first. No, and I suppose that... that account for why we have a relationship in the audience we have a relationship with singers that we simply don't have with any other member of a group because even in our our own crude way we can sing those songs you know we hear a song and it's the it's the tune and the lyrics are the first thing that we grab onto we don't grab onto the piano part or the guitar part or whatever these are things that we kind of internalize and we we either sing aloud to ourselves as we go for a walk or in the shower or whatever or we sing it within our heads and so there's a great closeness between the singer and the audience that doesn't exist between any other member of the band that's fair to say isn't it Yes, I think it is. And and also the singer in any group is the one who forges your idea of the personality of that music. In fact, she makes a really good point when she says, is it possible to like a group if you don't like the singer? Because she doesn't like Damon Albarn. 
And therefore, she's just uh, horrified by the sound of Blur because she can't get past Damon Albarn. I think the answer is it's impossible to like a group if you if you don't like the singer. You know, the, you have to warm to the singer in some way because they're the embodiment of the personality of the group. And you know, it's just an extension of that um, that old thing that you know body language and, and the the manner of somebody. You've kind of made up your mind about most people within two minutes of meeting them. Well, singing is just a kind of musical version of the same thing, isn't it? You've decided you're either going to warm to them or you're not. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. She, she, and she sort of talks, uh, which I think is really fascinating, and in a lot of detail about the difference between people's personalities on and off stage. She actually is obviously very like the person she, she appears to be on stage, and that's part of the appeal of the, of the music she's made. There's a lovely bit where she goes into a lady's loo and a load of girls come up to her. Do you remember that? Yeah. And they say, are you Tracy Thorne? Well, will you sing? Can sing. Prove you're Tracy Thorne by singing. And she sings, and, and they say, gosh, you sound exactly like you. But she makes some fantastic points about other singers that don't, which I thought were really interesting. She recorded with Elvis Costello, and Elvis Costello at one point says, would you like me to do another take as Elvis? Yes. And she records with Green from Scritti Politi, and he says, how scritty would you like yes. it? I thought that was really interesting. And then the really sad bit was that her details about Dusty Springfield, of whom I'm an enormous admirer. You know, Dusty Springfield, as we know, really invented a completely new person that she had to inhabit to be Dusty Springfield, to the extent that when she got up in the morning, she went through a two-hour process to turn herself into looking like Dusty Springfield. If you ever see pictures of Dusty at school, she's just a regular girl, actually. She doesn't have blonde hair. She doesn't have any of those kind of clothes. And she talked about how hard it was for her to carry on as Dusty Springfield uh, when she didn't got to the point where she didn't really want to be Dusty Springfield anymore. And I thought that was very fascinating. Now, one thing she says is that, is that she talks about the business of locating the voice inside yourself. The, the, you know, the, when she started saying, to sing, you know, what she sang at first was a very narrow version of what she could do. And then she slowly worked out what was the appropriate way for her to sing. And I, I'm very interested in this because I have, I'm not a singer, obviously. <laughs> I have no experience of it at all. But uh, this struck me as, as quite analogous to, to what they say about writing, that they, you know, that the writers have to learn what is their true voice. You know, what's the thing that comes naturally to them? And that's the way that they ought to write. And there's a tendency, even on the part of a writer, not to like your own voice. And this must be even more the case with a singer, that... That you know, that you must be kind of fed up of listening to yourself, and you sound, you think you sound fake or you know implausible in some way. But actually, you have to embrace the way that your voice kind of comes out at its best and most naturally. I, I was really interested in that. Yes, and I think she's very, uh, very honest actually about the idea of authenticity because she's concerned because she wants it to be an authentic version of her. But that doesn't mean she's really old-fashioned in the way she looks at singing, because she likes the concept of people who are not authentic. She talked very interestingly about Kate Bush. She said when she first heard Kate Bush singing Wuthering Heights, she said it was the most repulsive sound she'd ever heard in her life. And it was repulsive because it was artificial. But that, that artificiality is eventually what became Kate Bush's 
voice that became her personality, if you see what I mean. I thought that was really good, and there's a lovely bit which she's talking about. You know, we want things to be authentic. There's a bit where Morrissey talks about Nico, who he loves. He says, the sound of Nico's voice is the sound of a body falling downstairs. We want everything to be kind of true and real and gritty. And actually, she's very honest about it. She says she uh, herself, Tracy, sings in an American accent, and um, she's not afraid to use voice correctors, auto-tuners and stuff in the in the studio. Oh, it's quite refreshing, actually. And the the other person she talks about in terms of um, artificiality, very interestingly, is Mick Jagger. And you oh, know, the, the when Mick Jagger, you know, the the most common uh, criticism of Mick Jagger is that you know it's kind of it's a it's a it's his aping of loads of kind of R and B styles of you know blues singers in the cotton fields and and so forth. But actually, she makes the point. Nobody sounds like Mick Jagger. You know, you're going to listen to Jimmy Reed or Slim Harpo or Muddy Waters. It doesn't sound like Mick Jagger at all. What he came up with was a complete style of his own, which owed a certain amount to the kind of African-American tradition, but was introduced something that was totally different. And, uh, and it's extraordinary how successful a style that was. Yeah, completely. And the other great thing is that when you hear Mick Jagger, you hear just a split second of him on the radio, you know it's Mick Jagger. And so, you know, 90% of having any success at all is to have enough of a signature and enough of identity to make you immediately recognisable, I think. She talks about um, people have this idea that being able to sing um, must make people happy, that everybody thinks, wouldn't it be great to be able to sing like... Aretha Franklin, or anybody you, you care to name. And uh, and she points out that it's not always the case. And the fascinating case here, test case here, is, of course, Karen Carpenter, who, you know, the great pop voice of the, of the early to, to mid-1970s, she didn't want to be a singer. She regarded it as a terrible burden. She wanted to play drums in her brother's group, and her brother was the, you know, the talent as far as the rest of the family were concerned. And it was only when she, they got into the studios that they realised she had this extraordinary gift for for completely inhabiting a song and had a voice that... And here's another point that uh, that, that she makes. It's a voice that you can live with, Karen Carpenter. You can listen to it again and again and again, which doesn't apply to most... Uh, to most voices, but but it was the idea. It never made her happy at all, you know. And then, kind of, the more the audience thinks it makes them happy, the more tragic the situation is. She also talks about about Sandy Denny, um, round about the same time, you know, is obviously making music round about the same time. That that Sandy Denny never appeared to feel that whatever she gave people in terms of singing was quite enough for them. She could never be. She could never feel satisfied with herself with what she with what she communicated to the audience. No, that's that's absolutely true. And I, I think the more you listen to Karen Carpenter, who's a really good example, actually, the more those songs become sad because they become into into you know interwoven with the idea of her, the events of her actual life. You know, I had to go back and re-listen to Dusty Springfield and see it all again from the point of view of someone who is actually rather miserable, and they now become rather miserable songs. And, and that's another thing she talks about: is how is it easier to make people happy, or is it easier to make them sad? There are very few genuinely happy songs. The honest truth, I think, is that happy songs tend to be ones that you dance to, 
and sad songs uh, tend to be ones you listen to very intently, often on your own. You know, and you've got to ask yourself, you know, which Joni Mitchell would you rather have? Would you rather have a Big Yellow Taxi or would you rather have The Last Time I Saw Richard or River? And in my case, it would be the last two because that's the Joni Mitchell that I prefer and I feel that the other ones are fake. Well, not a fake, but putting on an act, which can't be true at all. But that's just the way I prefer it. I prefer Joni Mitchell to be downbeat and uh, slightly self-pitiful and a bit forlorn. Well, uh, th- those and many other issues that are about singing are covered in Tracy Thorne's book, Naked at the Albert Hall, The Insight Story of Singing. Uh, you listen to The Word podcast. I'm David Hepworth, and uh, on the other end of Skype is Mark Allen. In case you haven't come across a work podcast before, let me tell you how this works. Roughly every month, and we gather at the Islington, which is conveniently in Islington, and uh, we talk to a couple of people who've got interesting new books about music out. So, who have we had in the in the last few months? We've had uh, we've had Mick Wall, we've had uh, Dave Kavanagh, we've had Chris Salovitz. You know, in the past, we've had you know. Tracy Thorne, actually, we've had we've had Ben Watt, all sorts of people talking about music. These chats are recorded, and they go out on this podcast stream. Now, if you found this without subscribing to the stream, please go to wordpodcast.co.uk and do that straight away. And if you'd like to come to one of our recordings, and they start early. Uh, it's our it's our solemn promise. They start early, they finish early, and you can be <laughs> asleep by eleven o'clock. <laughs> Make sure you're on the mailing list by going to wiyelondon.com. I know it's complicated. Wylondon.com, and you can add your name to the mailing list, and uh, we'll keep you in touch. And our next one, uh, if you're hearing this in time, is on November the 17th, and features John Savage, who's talking about his new book about 1966. And on the same night, we're going to be uh, recording a chat with Howard Sounds about his new book, about Lou Reed and the Velvet Underground. So, next book, Mark. Well, yes, next book. Uh, I would, I would really recommend this fantastic book by a guy called John Seabrook called "The Song Machine Inside the Hit Factory," which I've just read. And Seabrook is a—you probably know him actually. Anyone listening as a, as a writer for New Yorker magazine, he's a terrific writer. And what I love about this, of many things, is that it's really the story of how pop music developed in the last twenty years and how sophisticated the world of trying to produce hit records has become and he keeps alluding back to you know the world of goffin and king and the the hit factories of the 60s and the brill building and tim pan alley etc but this is advanced and sophisticated to an absolutely dizzying degree the main central character of the book is a guy called max martin who people probably know, he, he, he was a, he's a, a Swedish uh, songwriter and musician, and he, he worked on production and songwriting for Backstreet Boys, NSYNC, Britney Spears, Pink, uh, gosh, who else? Katy Perry, Rihanna, Taylor Swift. I mean, it's fantastic. <laughs> I mean, this guy has had more hit records than the Beatles or Michael Jackson, etc. But what I thought was so amazing is that Seabrook is fascinated by the technical way in which they go about this, which is to reduce the possibility of failure. And these songwriting teams use, they describe themselves at one point, or he describes them, as being like vivisectionists on the island of Dr. Morrow, (laughs) i.e. bolting together the body parts of songs 
into something that might possibly give them some kind of commercial success. And just to give people some idea how, how extraordinary this is, they use a track and hook system, which is where somebody writes a rhythm part and then the, you employ um, melody writers or top liners, as they're called, to write uh, the, the melodies at the top. And they will often employ up to 50 different people to suggest what the tune should be over the top and choose the best or the best bits of it. They have writer camps and they describe the music as melodic math. So that's the kind of... Didn't you think that was extraordinary? Just the sheer level of that. I thought it was amazing. As you say, you know, that it's a brilliant history of what's gone on in the last 20 years for people like you and me and and probably quite a lot of people listening who've just thought, I can't keep up with this. This is this is so a different world, you know, and we've caught bits of the story, whereas what he does brilliantly in this book is he just tells the story of Britney Spears and the Backstreet Boys and so forth and how these acts were developed, how they got their particular break, you know, how, how it just happened in an extraordinary way for them. And, you know, he does say this relates to, you know, an old tradition of factory songwriting. And, and there is that, you know, if you look at Motown, you know, they tried, you know, heard it for the great band was recorded by loads of acts before it was recorded by Marvin Gaye. And, and that would apply with loads of Motown songs. But it really struck me that they are doing something very significantly different with this. And it has to be because the technology plays such a part in it, you know, that you can, you can fly in various different bits as you know, there are sound files, aren't there, that are, that are flown yeah. back and forth across the world and fitted into gaps, you know. So you have something that, even at its best, is unbelievably prefabricated because yeah. that's the way it has to work. But it has a kind of excitement all of its own. There's a brilliant point he makes, uh, in fact, constantly, it was this analogy with the fast food, you know, the snack food yeah. industry. I thought it was a really good point because what they talk about in, um, in, the, in, the, in the construction of, of current pop hits is this idea of bliss points. All this is new to me, actually. And a bliss point is one of those absolutely magical moments when, of, of, of real kind of ecstasy when the sound, the harmony, the rhythm, the, the, the melody... All those things, the lyric probably converge into a moment of absolute joy, and they have to see how much they've got to have, you know, six or seven bliss points every two minutes or whatever. I thought that was really, really fascinating, you know, and um, and also the idea that after all this technicality, he talked about familiarity as being a very, very key part of it. Do you remember at the beginning of the book, he's Max Martin is driving across, or it's Dennis Pop actually, Dennis Pop is Max Martin's um, uh, co-writer, co-producer, is driving across a bridge to Sweden and he's got an ace of bass demo cassette stuck in the dashboard of his Nissan Micra and he hates this record but he can't get it out because it's jammed in the machine and it's the only, it's also he can't play the radio which the radio's broken so the only thing he can listen to is this track and after two weeks of turning it on every day suddenly he sees the potential he sees how he can rearrange this and make it a hit. And he calls an ace and bass and they have a worldwide hit. So Seabrook makes this brilliant point that actually, in the end, who is the puppet master? You know, after all this, it may just be that if you hear something enough, it just takes root. Yeah. And the human mind starts to accept it. It's terrible to talk about things like that. It's if we are naturally resistant to pop music and are bludgeoned into submission. <laughs> but it's quite funny. 
And there's, one, there's one other thing I was going to say, which is that he talks about the, the difference in the two types of, of people involved, which is you've got the technicians, you've got the front front people, you know, you've got, you've got Rihanna herself, you've got Taylor Swift. And um, I thought that was really interesting. He describes them mostly as tall ectomorphs, you know, with the sallow skin of a studio rat. And they're these fabulously geeky, mostly men, actually, in these studios all day. And, of course, the, the people fronting the songs are really, really kind of up... Yes. On, on effervescent songbirds. And uh, that's fascinating. And then you see these, the, how high risk it is. Um, there's a brilliant moment where Baby One More Time is the song written by them that's offered to TLC, who turn it down, and it's accepted very, 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 uh, very uh, warmly by Britney Spears, and that invents her entire career. Britney Spears then, when her career is faltering, is offered Umbrella, written by the same team, yeah. doesn't like it, <laughs> yeah. and it's given to Rihanna... Uh, and her entire career is launched, you know. And you can just think the whole time, you know, there's these songs floating around. They've got to find the right person to attach them to at the right time. I thought ba- Baby One More Time is a, is a fantastic example yeah. of this because he makes the point here that, and we're all familiar with Baby One More Time, he makes the point that it's a rock song, really, that its chord changes are completely rock chord changes. And therefore, he would have had difficulty getting a kind of African-American act to do it because they're listening for something slightly different, you know. And that one of the great strengths of Max Martin and all these people was that they were Scandinavian. And therefore, they're not afflicted by the snobberies and prejudices of American pop music or British pop music, they came at it with a completely fresh ear, which is that they knew that in Europe you had to have something that people could sing along to and that, and that they preferred something that they could punch the air with and that in America you had to have a kind of hard dance track underneath it all and they brought these things together incredibly successfully. And so it started off with just Ace of Bass and Max Martin. And then it ends up with whole colonies of Scandinavian songwriters living in the Hollywood Hills, just counting money in staggering, staggering quantities. I mean, these people, I never realised this. Was it Ace of Bass' best-selling debut album of all time? Yeah. Something like 30 million copies? Yeah. And this... Screw Most people never even, you know, if they've heard of them, they've forgotten about them, you know. But, you know, these people had, had an unbelievable payday, which I suppose is still going on. It's an extraordinary story. It's still going on. And I think that your point you made about coming from Sweden is really important because I can remember when, um, when the Sugar Cubes and Björk first appeared. Um, you know, it was really interesting reading interviews with Björk. She talked about... Um, you know, the unav- the lack of availability of music, uh, you know, and therefore they would listen to Europop on the radio and they would listen to whatever records they could buy, but they weren't precious about anything. They were just really grateful it was there. They didn't have that kind of, just what you say, that kind of snobbery about what was somehow cool and right and what was somehow kind of ghastly and commercial over there. And um, that, that they got, they got no, um, they got no kind of, um, traditions that these guys that they're abiding by they're just there as in a real kind of scientific way actually just producing the things that will sell right for that person in that market and they're brilliant and i thought it was absolutely riveting it's it's a great book so give, give us the title again mark it's called the song machine inside the hit factory and it's by john seabrook and i think it came out about i don't know about a week ago actually it's published by who's it published by jonathan cape 
It's very, very good. It is very good. And before that, we were talking about Tracy Thorne's Naked at the Albert Hall. Uh, thanks very much for listening. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.